next Sunday, I'm gonna, we're going to take a break from our Through the Bible study to just talk for, for a Sunday about the church and our church and what it's about and fill you in on some details of things that are just going on in the church. I'm going to do kind of a state of the church address. I haven't done one in a few years. So um, if this is your church especially, uh, you want to try to be here for, for next Sunday for that time. But now let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. As we're studying through the book of 1 Timothy, we saw last week where Paul was talking to Timothy about um, the, the relationships that we have, some of which are relationships whereby we are yoked to another person. And he talks about the importance of if you're yoked, if you're in a dependent or interdependent relationship, it's important to honor that person that you are yoked with. And he goes on to say that if you don't get this, if you don't understand this, you're going to be constantly fighting against what God is doing in your life. And he said, ultimately, to not understand what it is to submit to relationships is to... Uh, have the idea that somehow godliness is about winning. Godliness is about gain. It's about getting more. It's about getting ahead. It's about coming out on top. Now, that brings him to this next section, beginning with verse 6, where he introduces a related topic, but a really important topic to us, and, and that is the topic of contentment. He contrasts the idea of godliness being a means of gain, and now he says godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is that holy grail that everyone is trying to get, to reach the point where you're finally satisfied, where you finally have enough, where things are finally the way you want them to be. Most of us spend much of our lives trying to get more, thinking that at some point it will finally feel like it's enough. And if you want to know what it is that you're looking for to be content, look at what you complain about. Because the things that we complain about tell us what it is that we think if we get them, it's going to enrich our lives. So when we come up short in any area and we begin to complain, we're saying, that thing that I'm complaining about is what's missing in my life. That's the problem that I need to get solved. That's what will finally satisfy me. I think it's amazing what we are able to complain about. I, I sometimes listen to myself, and it's so easy to take things for granted and not be grateful for them, but complain about the way that they are. Uh, the other day, we were having a conversation about cell, cell phone service, and it really drives me crazy when I'm talking to someone on my cell phone, and all of a sudden, the call just drops. Now, I've been with AT&T twice, I've been with Sprint, I've been with T-Mobile, I've been with Verizon, I've done, done all the companies, and calls drop with all of them, and it just drives me crazy, and we love to sit around talking about that. But it's like, I had somebody younger ask me the other day, what'd you guys do before cell phones? And I thought, we drove around looking for this thing called a phone booth, that you know, it used to have a phone book in it, but it was always torn out, and half the time they wouldn't work, and they were always in the most dangerous areas of town. And, you know, then I started thinking back to, remember what having a party line was? You actually picked up your phone and somebody else was using it, and you had to wait? I'm that old. And just 
the, the whole notion, it used to be a long-distance call to call from here to Huntington Beach because it was in a different area code or a different area. Uh, you know, it would cost you like a couple dollars to call Downey. Now, with our phones, you can call anywhere for nothing. You just pay this one thing, but we, we take it so for granted and we whine about it. The first cell phones... Well, they weren't really cell phones, but they had a box the size of a suitcase in the trunk of your car, then about a box the size of a, you know, a, an ammo box and about that heavy inside the car, and then a whole receiver with a cord hooked to it. And boy, you thought you were rich when you were driving around with one of those things. Now my cell phone is a tiny little thing, and I can't wait till they come out with the next one because it'll probably be even thinner. But it's so light, and it, and. You know, I complain when I don't get a good internet service on my phone. Are, are you even thinking about what that is and how entitled we become so quickly when we get the next technology? I, I went in the other day at Barnes & Noble and looked at this new device they have called the Nook. And it's a reading device that you can have over a thousand books inside this thing that's about this big. It's about a, less than half an inch thick. And I looked at it, and I started reading a book and turning the pages, and it was like, it felt kind of slow. And so I went and looked on the internet, and people are really ripping the nook because they compare it to the Kindle, and they showed, watch how slow it takes to turn the page. And they push both buttons, one turns, the other turns. And we go, oh yeah, that one stinks. It's a, it's a thousand books. It's a room full of books that you can carry in this little device, and already it feels slow. You can't read that fast, but it feels slow. It's, it's crazy. And then we complain about air transportation. I watched a, a uh, you know, and I, when I get on an airplane, I hate having to, you know, they take your shoes off, and it's like, oh, brother, my, oh, it's your belt, it's your this, it's your that. I mean, how would I feel if I'm in an airplane and it blows up? That would really inconvenience me. But how, how soon we just become so spoiled. And I watched something on the Internet. Somebody sent me a, a link a few weeks ago of a guy talking about the way we complain and we're so entitled on air transportation. And he said, yeah, you complain about it takes over five hours to get from New York to L.A. He said, it used to take 30 years, and most of the people who left with you died on the way. And he said, you know, it, every time we fly in an airplane, instead of complaining about, oh, the flight's delayed or they charge you for food now, we ought to be going, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. I'm sitting in a chair 35,000 feet in the air going 550 miles an hour. This is amazing. But no, we take it for granted and we just think, hmm, that's the way it is. But see, that's the way we are. We take everything that we have as if the world owes it to us, and then we need just a little bit more, and then it will finally be enough. And we're hoping someday to find satisfaction, someday to finally be content, to be able to relax, but that day never comes. And Paul knew this, and that's why he's coaching Timothy on this concept and saying, satisfaction is not going to come once you get a few more things. Satisfaction is not going to come by acquiring, accomplishing, finishing. It is not around the corner. Ultimately, the only way you will ever be satisfied if you decide to be satisfied right now, right where you are. 
Paul talks about this over in Philippians 4 and talks about how he learned to be content. But here, let's look beginning with verse 6. He had said, some people foolishly think that godliness is a way to get ahead, is a means of gain. He said, now godliness with contentment, that is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Boy, you know, we all have food and clothing, don't we? And yet, are we satisfied? Or are we constantly looking for more, trying to achieve more? In the process of looking for more, we often sacrifice godliness. And that's his, that's his concern. Now, the word that's used here for content in the Greek is the word archeo, which is a word that means to lift up a barrier. Now, here's how it came to mean content or satisfied or enough. Um, when they would eat at a banquet, the servants would keep bringing food until you signaled to them that you had enough food. And we do the same thing now. Someone offers seconds and we hold our hands up and say, nope, <laughs> enough is enough, I've had enough. Most of us don't do that soon enough, but at some point, it happens. And so that's the word that's used here for content. Now, the word for contentment is that same word combined with the word for yourself. It's, it makes it reflexive. And so the idea is contentment is the time when you say yourself, you decide, I have enough. Enough is enough. Stop. I'm going to slow down. I'm going to ease up. I'm going to choose that myself. I'm not going to wait until I've maxed out my credit. I'm not going to wait until I don't have any more room in my closet. I'm going to decide at some point, I'm good. I'm fine. I don't need any more. Now, as he's saying this, that word for gain is also an interesting word. It's a word that means to furnish. It, it came to, well, think about it this way. You have a bare room. There's nothing in it. Now, you need to acquire certain things in order to make that room efficient and to make it complete. And so you look at a, an empty room and you say, well, over here a sofa would fit good. There's room for a chair over here, needs a little table next to it, probably some lighting so you can read in that chair, obviously big screen TV on a wall somewhere. And at some point, you've purchased enough furniture, and you say, now this room's finished. And so the word for gain is to, it, it became a word that meant to get things. But the idea was it was to get things in order to furnish um, a house or a room. Now, for many of us, once we get that filled, it's not enough. We get a few extra pieces, and then all of a sudden, we need to figure out where we're going to put them. Maybe we even rent storage to put some of the stuff in, or we knock out some walls, or we decide, I, we really need a bigger house. How many of us really have ever needed a bigger house, really? But we just decide that because it's fun to fill them. And, you know, this one, the floor plan's never been quite right. And what he's saying is, if you live your life that way, you're never going to say, I'm done. <laughs> One of the things that's fascinating about God is he created the whole universe in six days, 
And then on the seventh day he rested. He was done. He was finished. He knew when enough was enough. And a lot of us never learn when enough is enough. And we live in a society that thrives on people wanting more. We live in an economy that absolutely depends on us deciding that what we have isn't enough. And we need a little bit more. We continue to replace things that are perfectly fine. Someone was telling me the other day about Nicolas Cage, who's in a lot of financial troubles right now, but he owns like houses all over the world. And one year he bought 22 luxury cars. Really? You needed that, Nick? Was it, was it that important? It's a really good feeling to, it's a much better feeling to get by with what you have than it almost ever is to get something new with the attendant expenses that come with it. I've been due for a new car for a while, um, you know, and I've thought about it, but my car is perfectly good. Now, it has 160,000 miles on it, but it's a Toyota, so that's really not that much. It's 11 years old, and when I bought it, it had a salvage title. I like getting cars with salvage titles because... It's already been wrecked, and that way, if you wreck it, you're just breaking even. But my car still works fine, and it's a good car. And people wouldn't look at it and know that it's as old or that, you know, it doesn't say salvage title on it. And the car's doing me fine. And for the last few years, I've thought about replacing it. My wife even was encouraging me to replace it. But for me, every day that I drive that car... I'm getting that much more ahead. If it'll last me another 20,000 miles or something, what a great deal to get that for free. And then the car that'll replace it will probably be that much better. Sure, I look at some newer cars and I go, ooh, that'd be nice to have that frill or that extra. But, you know, it's not killing me to drive the same car. I'm okay. I might enjoy a newer car. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you just bought a new car or you're thinking about it. I... After second service, it occurred to me, you know, um, Ivan that goes here, who's a car salesman at uh, the Toyota place, and Van who sells Mercedes in Newport Beach. I'm like, these guys are going to hate me. But fortunately, I didn't see either one of them today, so I'll have at it. But it really doesn't satisfy you to keep replacing what you have. Now, as he goes on to say... Here's the baseline. We brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. He goes, you know, when you were born, you were naked, you were hungry. When you die, naked and hungry. And they'll put your nice suit on you, but they'll ruin it to get it on you. And it's like anything above that, aren't we ahead of the game? Aren't we doing better than when we started? And so he's saying, how about just settling for whatever you have? Now, he isn't saying that you shouldn't have more than one set of clothes and more than one meal. But, and in fact, in a couple of weeks when he talks about people who are rich in this world, he says some pretty radical things about the fact that sometimes God gives you extra so you can enjoy it. And, and that's kind of interesting, too. He's not saying where to set the line. He's not saying you're not spiritual if you have a new car or if you have X amount of clothes or too much food or whatever. 
But all he's, all he's saying is, think about it. If you, if you have clothes and if you have food, you're doing pretty good. Is there a place where you can finally say, I have enough? Is there a place where you can slow down the madness of trying to push to get ahead enough to just go, I'm okay right now? I, had, I use an iPhone and I really like it. And when the new one came out a while back, the, the uh, 3GS, I really wanted one. But I hadn't had my old one long enough to get the new one cheap. And I just, I feel so good about the fact that I'm still using my old iPhone. I saved a couple hundred dollars and it still works fine. It's okay. And when the new one comes out, no, I'm just kidding. But how, how often do we continue just to try to leapfrog through technology or through possessions in order to think at some point it'll be like, yeah, this is what I've been waiting for. This is what will satisfy me. This is what's going to feel okay. And then start to enjoy life and then start to actually create some space in our life. Now he goes on and talks about some of the hazards of staying on that hamster wheel And he says, but, verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition or waste. He said, if you keep trying to get more, you run the risk of being suffocated by what you're getting and it'll end up being a waste. And then he says in verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The word there for evil isn't the normal word for evil, Ross. This is the word kakos, which means worthless. And he's pointing out the irony that so much of what you buy is worthless. is, is just a waste of the work that you put into trying to get it. For which some have strayed from the faith, in their greediness, and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. That word for greediness is a Greek word that means to be stretched. And the image here is, I always want more. I want to reach a little further. I want to push myself a little more. It's what caused the the disruption in the economy here over the last year or so, year and a half. Because people stretched. It's like, I'm okay in this house, but I think I can make it to this one. And so, yeah, I can't really afford it, but I think I can make it. And of course, everyone's more than willing to help you accommodate that with adjustable rate loans with an early, you know, low rate at the beginning. And you're thinking, if I get a bigger house, it's going to appreciate faster than my cruddy little house. And this is how I'm going to get ahead. This is how I'm going to get rich. And we stretch. We even heard, I heard on Christian radio ads from people who were who are trying to spiritualize this phenomenon and saying, you know, if you have a bunch of equity in your house, you're not being a good steward. You need to put that money to work. Yeah, how's that working for you now? How, how has that panned out? But see, that's what we think. We convince ourselves a little bit more, and then it's really going to get great. I've always dreamed of that house. I've always dreamed of having that car. I've always dreamed of 
being able to buy that or to go there or to do this. And in the process, like a rubber band, we're being stretched. A lot of people, the way they work all the time is a stretching, but I've just got to do this because I have to get ahead. I have to make this business successful or whatever. And it's just stretching and stretching and stretching. And at some point, bam, it's going to snap back or it's going to break completely. And we're going to go, what happened? I stretched too far. And he's saying, this is what happens. And he says, in the process of stretching What do you neglect? Sometimes even godliness. Sometimes your relationship with the Lord gets put on the shelf because of what you're doing to try to stretch yourself, to be able to make that payment or to be able to get to that point or to buy that stuff. And and you think that you'll reach satisfaction, but all you reach is tension. If you're lucky, it doesn't snap back or it doesn't pop. But at the very least, there's this tightness in you that robs you of years of your life. And you find out, I I wasted so much. I, I wasted so many opportunities looking for things, thinking that they would make me satisfied. They never do. You'll never be satisfied until you learn to be satisfied right now with what you have. Like there's a Sheryl Crow song, Um, soak up the sun that says it's not having what you want it's wanting what you got and that's true it's finally coming to the point where you go I'm good I'm okay I have what I need now I'm going to relax the tension and I'm going to enjoy now I'm going to spend that time with the Lord that I've always been thinking I would do later Now maybe I'll spend an afternoon sitting in a hammock. Sometimes that might be the most important thing for you to do. But you think, well, there'll always be time, some other time to do that. To go out in nature, to go walk on the beach, to appreciate the beauty around us, to spend time with people that you love, to write that note to someone that you've been meaning to, or to to do whatever it is that brings real value to life. But I can't do those things because I've got to get more. I've got to achieve more. I've got to accomplish more. I have to acquire more because there's this image that I have out there that sometime I'm going to be satisfied. Sometime I'm going to be content. So we don't appreciate each other because no other person can meet those needs either. No matter what they do for you, it's not enough. No matter how much they do for you, it's still just a little bit more that you expect from them. And we put that pressure on everything in our lives because we're expecting those things to satisfy us. But the thing that is causing us to be dissatisfied, the hole that exists in our life, is not meant to be met by acquiring things. The hole that's in our life is because there's something missing in our relationship with God. It's the godliness that we've crowded out for all these other things that we think are going to work, and they just don't work. They can't. And so we live our lives under tension. We really don't live our lives at all. We're just trying to make it a little bit further, a little bit harder, to get a little bit more. The 23rd Psalm is a psalm that I almost always quote when I do funerals. 
because it's a psalm that just means so much to people when someone comes to the end of their life. It's a comforting psalm written by David about the Lord being his shepherd. And it starts out, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Wow. It ends by saying, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And in between there, it says, God makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. When does that happen? Oh, I'll get around to it. And so we wait till the end of life, and we try to conjure up this image of peace and calm and quiet and joy and satisfaction because we've lived our whole lives without it. How important it is for us to discover Psalm 23 before we're dead, before our life here is over. I often tell the story I heard years ago about a little girl who learned the 23rd Psalm to quote it in church. And she was to get up in front of the church and say the 23rd Psalm, and she worked really hard on it, and and her mom drilled her on it, and she had it down pat. But then she got up in front of church and looked out at all the people, and she just froze up. She couldn't think of it. Her mom was in the front row cueing her stage mom, you know, and, and she goes, the Lord is my shepherd. And she goes, oh, yeah. The Lord is my shepherd, and that's all I want. And she walked off. (laughs) She gets it. That's a profound commentary on the 23rd Psalm, I think. The Lord is my shepherd, and that's all I want. When are we going to learn that? On our deathbed? Are we going to discover it when there's still time to lie down in green pastures and beside still waters and to have our soul restored and to allow goodness and mercy to follow us? Are we going to decide to live our lives by, by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't need to keep wanting. I don't need to keep striving. I don't need to keep acquiring. Y- using greed to try to satisfy me. Maybe enough is enough. Maybe I'm okay where I am. Maybe this house will work for me. Maybe this car for a little longer. Maybe I I, I buy a new car every year. Maybe I can go another year with this thing. What would happen? What would happen if if we all just decided that 2010 was the year when we were going to say, got enough. I don't think any one of us would would be too bad off if, if we just went 2010 with the same clothes we have now especially after Christmas. I've discovered that if you don't buy new clothes, people will buy them for you eventually. <laughs> but, but what if we just go, you know, I'm going to do with these. And what if we went home and said, let's start eating some of the food we already have before we keep getting more food to pack in the refrigerator, to put in the cabinets, to bread that'll go stale on us and everything. What if we just go, let's start eating some of this other stuff. Why'd we buy it in the first place? Well, you know, Costco has the huge package. Well, what would happen to our lives if we just decided that we were going to live from a standpoint of having enough instead of from a standpoint of always wanting more? I wonder how that would transform our lives. It would destroy the U.S. economy, so don't tell your friends, but just, if just us would do that, that would be okay. 
godliness with contentment. That's really getting ahead. That's real game. And the more that we can do it, the more we at least decide at some point to say, I'm good. I have what I need. I'm going to enjoy what I have. I'm going to use what I have. And the extra time that's cleared up in my life, the extra resources, I'll seek God as to what to do. I'll start to play with the toys I have. I'll start to enjoy the opportunities that I have. I'll go, you know, look through those gift certificates that have been stacking up and actually start using some of them instead of just going to some other restaurant because, well, you know, I feel like it. How our lives would be freed up. How the tension would be relaxed. How we would discover there's a lot of extra time that we can spend with the Lord. A lot of growing that we can do because finally one of the things that will happen is we'll start thanking God instead of constantly praying to Him for more stuff. We'll go, God, I have more than food and clothes and I really appreciate it. I feel really lucky because of all that you've given me. I feel wealthy beyond imagination because I'm way ahead of where I started in life. And that kind of a spirit of gratitude transforms everything about your life. And it certainly changes your relationship with God. If God isn't that, that great, you know, uncle upstairs that has, you know, you have your hand out and he's giving you stuff all the time, and instead he's the one who has given you so much that you can't even think of anything else that you need. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that's what Paul is saying here. Don't trade away a relationship with God. Don't trade away godliness for things that moth and rust will decay and thieves will break in and steal. Don't think that you need more. Prove to yourself that you're already rich, that you're already blessed, that you already have more than enough. At some point, and you can decide what that point is, but at some point, what's going to be enough? When are you finally going to say, I'm going to take a break here on acquiring things. And I'm going to start focusing on enjoying life. I'm going to start focusing on spending time with God, spending time resting, creating some space in my life to relieve that tension that this world and this economy and my own desires have stretched me to the limit. Oh, how much destruction is done in our lives when we allow ourselves to be stretched. And how much peace God could give us if we just learned to say, enough. I'm satisfied. I'm blessed. I pray that as we reflect on what 2010 is going to be like, that some of us would get by with a little less. We'd go a little longer. We'd take some of the pressure off. We would value things that are really valuable instead of things that just pretend to be valuable. And we'd stop dreaming of the day when we have enough. And we would look at our lives right now and we would look in the mirror and go, this is that day. I have enough because the Lord is my shepherd. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you do for us. We, it's, it's so sad when we feel so poor, when we are actually so rich. You've done so much for us. Lord, help us to appreciate what we have. Help us not to be thrifty because we have to, 
but help us to sensibly limit ourselves because we get to, because we are getting off the hamster wheel and we want to enjoy every ounce of life. And we want to enjoy life that isn't so tense, that isn't so tight, that isn't pushing so hard. Lord, you've been good to us, and we thank you. Help us to notice what you've done for us this year, to stop complaining about what we don't have. You truly know what's best for us. So, Lord, what we have, we appreciate. It's from you. It's a gift, and if you want to take any of it away, we're fine with that, too. Leave us a set of clothes and a meal, and we'll be fine. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.